I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. We're here with Lizzie, Lizzie Dastin. Hi, guys, and Justin, Justin Bua. Or just Bua, for sure. So today we're going to talk about uh, something that we've wanted to talk about for a long time, which is erotic art. It's a field of pretty much almost every artist, their spectrum, uh, in terms of having having that in their arsenal. I think that even if they're not famous for erotic art like an Egon Sheila was, I think that every artist has a secret diary of erotic sensual works. So Lizzie researched it uh, incessantly and, and, and built a <laughs> PowerPoint, so PowerPoint presentation, and I'm just flying <laughs> off the cuff. So uh, Lizzie actually put together a real, like, proficient uh, PowerPoint presentation. Well, I'm a visual learner, and if we're going to talk about explicit sex, I want to have fun things to look at. Sure. That's great. <laughs> so Lizzie, what do you want, what, what struck you about this topic, and why did you go to the lengths of actually putting together a, a presentation? Well, what struck me, first of all, is that explicit sex is kind of on the fringes of the trope of eroticism and sexuality because a lot of artists historically have painted female nudes or sensuous figures, and that has been a provocation at some times, like when Manet painted his Olympia in 1863. But Olympia, even though she was nude, and even though there's a lot of aesthetics and clues that will eroticize it and make it a little bit more sexualized than just a typical reclining nude, still we don't see any kind of penetrative act. And I'm wondering, and this is really my first area of inquiry, is why artists are inspired to paint or depict something in a really aggressive way, like what that offers to them and who is meant to see it and why. Well, I think that there is an answer for that. And I think before, you know, pornography, certainly on the web, before pornography in magazines, uh, many artists made a living actually doing pornographic work. Um, one thing a lot of people don't know and I don't know if you know this, but Rembrandt. I did. I was actually okay. just going to say it. <laughs> Rembrandt used to uh, peddle his, he used to do erotic art, uh, very good etching-like uh, draftsman work. Yes, you brought up the, the, the monk in the cornfield. And he used to do erotic art and sell it to the lower class because there was a market there. And it goes to show you that here we have this guy who has done these very profound, important paintings historically, like Night Watch and self-portraits, where he's chronicling his own demise, his own, you know, into the good night visual depictions. But what we don't know is, how does this guy make money? Of course, he makes money with commissions, but there's a whole important stream of revenue in this underground market of sexual drawings and paintings. And a lot, what people don't realize is that a lot of artists to pay the bills and to keep the lights on did a lot of pornographic 
or erotic work because that was considered erotic during that time. Even though today it's considered an incredible drawing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And looking at it, it's almost opaque in the act that it's depicting. It's not really that explicit, although for Rembrandt and for the time, that conservative time, it certainly was. And I think it's great that you mentioned pornography because I think we need to disentangle pornographic art or explicitly sexual art with pornography because it is still a distance away from the act itself. And it is elevating something. And I think it's also kind of destigmatizing sex and it is an act of sex positivity too. So sure, artists have to pay the bills. Sure, it's fun to look at things that you want to do. But I also think that the rendering of this work is pretty exquisite. And sometimes it's also subversive. And I'm thinking of Charles Demuth, who is an American artist working in the 1930s. And he's really best known for his precisionism. So for his paintings of the American landscape that's done almost in this this cubist style where he has bifurcating lines and all of these sharp, precise angles. But he identified as queer. And he also did these really fantastic watercolors of sailors, of men engaging in in sex. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure whether he did that for money or for some kind of psychological release, because at that point, it wasn't really safe for men or women to be overt with their sexuality if it wasn't heteronormative. And so for him, it could have just been a way to to honor something that was going on inside of him that should be celebrated, but culturally couldn't. There's another artist by the name of Paul Cadmus, who you probably know, who did a very famous famous painting, worked in egg tempera primarily. Uh, He's in museums across the world. He was another uh, gay artist. And back in the early 1900s and even, you know, 19... 50s, he, he, was very, he was very active uh, with his art, and he did a very important painting called Bar Italia, where he's depicting all the different American type of people in Italy and how like, disgusting and grotesque that Americans can be, especially in the, you know, in the world of Europe. And he used to do a lot of homoerotic work. And like a man getting on the bicycle. Some of it was like very subtle and other of his work would be considered very pornographic, especially at the time. So he's another important artist I think everybody should check out is Paul Cadmus. He's a very, very good draftsman. He draws very volumetrically in this, in kind of in the vein of Michelangelo in the, in the, in the genre of the Renaissance artists and in terms of constructivism. But he is definitely an important painter, not just a queer painter, but, you know, an actually important painter. I mean, he's in museums all over. But probably not for that work, which is always interesting that the really explicit work, because Picasso did it and Dali and all of these people who are iconic and synonymous with survey museums around the world, but this work is often excluded. And so there is something kind of seedy and underground and dirty about this stuff. And I think that's really interesting. And also in researching, and researching is just such a funny word about this topic, but in investigating 
these sexual themes, I found that a lot of non-Western cultures have more eroticized art as a part of the everyday in a way that isn't really true for Western art, that we have so much conservatism comparatively to the rest of the world. Yeah, I just saw the Picasso show in Montreal, Muriel, and a lot of the African sculpture, which was, of course, consisted of faces and all kinds of things, but there was a lot of erotic things that were going on, including, like, erectile genitalia. It was, like, you know, sculptures and statues of men with giant erections and stuff like that, and that was placed right next to Picasso's interpretation of that, and so I think Picasso was very influenced by, in his erotic art, which we see a lot of his erotic art uh, in his etchings. He did a lot of etchings, and it was mythological, but he also did a lot of erotic mythological interpretations in his lithos and his etchings uh, and in some of his paintings. But he was directly influenced, I think, mostly from this African sculpture. I would agree with that. And that begs me to ask the question, why is it more culturally and socially accepted for these sexual themes to come from other countries than it is to come from the United States. Because we're they're closer to the earth. They're they're closer to not being so caught up in, you know, all of the all of the social norms, you know, what's what's socially acceptable. They're just like, you know, they're living, they're hunting, they're gathering, they're fucking, you know, they're loving. It's like raw. They don't have all this extra padded in, insulated bullshit of what's culturally normative. And I think that that's why they can do that. And in our culture, many artists have hidden, most artists, I would say, have actually hidden their erotic work. And I think most artists, uh, including myself, have a giant gallery in their flat files or in their shelves of erotic works. But I think that most people just don't show it as much. You know, Charles Bragg, another good example of a guy who, you know, half of his drawings were comical and they were storytelling. If you guys don't know Charles Bragg, B-R-A-G-G, look him up. Really, really good artist in New York. He's dead. He was a really good artist. <laughs> so, but anyway, there, I mean, like he had half of it, you know, like I'd say half of his work was sexual. A lot of nymphs, a lot of really, like Robert Crumb. Look at Robert Crumb's work. It's super sexual work. But he's, those are artists that are celebrated for it. I think most people had to hide it. I was just going to say, because some people, contemporary artists too, like John Curran or Lisa Yuskovage or, or Jeff Koons. Jeff Koons, Gata Amer, these people are known for their sexual themes. And that is a different kind of category than the artists like Picasso, Dali, Demuth, and Brad, or the ones that you mentioned who did things as a side project, even you, because I know that you have a lot of erotic art. And just kind of going back to this non-Western comparison between what is permissible throughout the world and what is permissible in the United States, I agree with what you say. I think it's kind of slippery or dangerous to say closer to the earth, just because there are lots of racialized implications about that that I don't think you were that you were meaning. And I really think that it's the United States as just such a puritanical place coming from the roots of our country. And it's interesting, I teach the history of art from the United States, and we are so conservative mm -hmm. historically and just kind of regressive. 
And I think that it's more of an issue, a local issue, than anything else. Because places like Japan with the Shunga art that I know you love and we should talk about that, or Southeast Asia or Africa, there are lots of places around the world that do celebrate these sexual themes. Yeah, and we do too, but we are, you know, we go in and out of our Victorian ideology. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, we're... Where the the hippie Woodstock era, where everything's free to be you and me, Marlo Thomas. I love that movie. I know. <laughs> record. You never heard the free to be you and me record because no, you're too I saw young. The movie. Okay, goddamn. Well, Marlo Thomas, who was married to Phil Donahue, or still is, uh, uh, she made a record called "Free to Be You and Me," and it was very like '70s. Anyway, amazing. And you saw the movie. I did. It's but very positive about just exploring your feelings. identity. Yeah, feelings. feelings, but in an in a spectrum kind yep. of space and not such a binary logic with regards to gender. And that was great. Yeah, it was a football player, Rosie Greer. It's all right to cry. It's all right to cry. Sometimes crying makes you feel better. You don't remember that show? I do. I just oh love listening to you sing but, it. <laughs> but it was but it was a it was a time and place where everything was free. Like the words were free. It was okay to experience you know, having having deep emotions and being a man, it was okay to just be sexual. It was okay to paint erotically. Then we went into the dark ages of, you know, Bush. And then we came into the light of Clinton where we knew he was doing some crazy shit. Not saying it was all right, but I don't know. It's in and out. It was, uh, we've always been that way, but we're always pretty in terms of sexuality, very closed off. As opposed to Europe, you see... You know, women are on, you know, in the south of France bathing topless. Here, it's like, oh, my God, did you see that woman? And that's just not okay. But at the same time, sexuality, we're getting into a way deeper, different conversation. At the same time, you know, you're seeing underage girls wear short shorts and their butt cheeks are showing. And that's just like, come on, like, it's ridiculous. So in a way, it's very Victorian. In a way, it's just hyper-sexualized, and that's probably why there's a backlash of being so conservative. So the point is that our sexuality is fucked up because <laughs> in the end of the day, they don't allow art to shine, and that's really what it's about. And so it's really important to have uh, this, this erotic art because it's part of all of us. We're sexual beings, and it's part of us to express ourselves as artists, so it's a great thing. And we talked about Shunga art a little bit, that was another uh, area where they were doing these Japanese, whether it was woodprints or, or drawings or paintings or etchings, but it was a whole culture and genre of erotic art. And in the Edo period in Japan, so really the end of the the eighteen or the end of the seventeen hundreds, and then through the middle of the 1800s, and shunga means spring, which Mm -hmm. is some kind of reference to sex in Japanese culture. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the work, maybe done by hokusai or the people that... Well, the hokusais and the hiroshige's and the artists that were very popular, once again, like Rembrandt, they had a whole other stream of revenue. They had a whole other market, and a lot of people couldn't make art just for making art and selling it as fine art. They did illustrations, and that was the genre of Shunga art, and they were hawking their goods because people were buying that shit on the down low. Uh, Whether it was just straight a man penetrating a woman doggy style or an octopus having sex with a woman. So you have this octopus 
and they're having sex with a woman. It's just all this crazy, uh, I want to say bestiality, but it's not defined as bestiality, but it's octopality or whatever it would be. <laughs> You've got this octopus, which we all know octopus are like kind of come from another place. I mean, they've got eight brains. They've got a brain in every, uh, in every tentacle. They're incredibly intelligent. They're shapeshifters. They change color. They change form. They're very logical. They're very sensitive. And they're very human in many ways. So you have a lot of this, like, this sexual act between octopus and woman. Yeah, the best one is titled The Fisherman's Wife, or The the Fisherman's Wife's Dream. There you go. Yeah, I think it's so great, and it kind of skirts this balance between being completely fantastical, but also being rooted in reality and a real experience, at least partially a real experience. And so I think it's very interesting and effective and kind of reminds me of all of these literary explosions of, uh, that's also an awkward word to use, but anyway, this literary genre of humans engaging in romance and sex with vampires or zombies or machines. And so it's this hybridity with relation to sexuality that we're intrigued by, but also ashamed of. Well, in Shanga, there was all these stories and these fables that they would illustrate. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it came down to the fact that people like weird shit and people got off on weird shit. You know what I mean? And so, therefore, there's a market for it. Just like today, you know, the, the three biggest underground markets are, you know, pot, porn, and drugs or, you know, arms trade, whatever. Pornography is part of that. And so I think that, unfortunately trying to disentangle erotic art with pornography oftentimes can be dangerous. And I think now it's way more acceptable as to, because it's drawn. But I remember in the beginning of Instagram when I would post a couple of erotic work, there was this taken down. Like Instagram was very conservative. And then, you know, now obviously Instagram is a, is a space where people are posting all kinds of stuff and it's a lot more democratic. But for a while, even like you had to, even if I did a drawing of a woman, I had to blur out her nipples. And this is like 2017 or 16. So even in our time, it's interesting, right? Because I'm just doing a drawing. And I understand the idea that the pen is mightier than the sword, but come on, this is a drawing of a female form. And what I think is kind of interesting about that, so it engages in this conversation of censorship and... I think by blurring the body, you actually draw more attention to it than had you left the drawing completely untouched. And an anecdote that I have about that is that I spoke a few years ago at this conference in Dubai, and I didn't read the temperature of the room, and I spoke about the gender inequity in street art. And so I'm talking about all these women who are doing illegal things. And that was a really interesting experience in and of itself. But another woman who was presenting was doing so on the female form throughout Mm. art. And in every single painting and sculpture that she showed, she put censorship bars over the relevant parts. And I swear to you, I have never thought more about boobs and vaginas than I did that day because I was denied them. And in putting some kind of censorship space in between my eye and my expectation, I thought about it even more. And so I think that in denying, we almost encourage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People want what they can't get. 
You know, that's the bottom line. And I think that uh, when you look at artists like Egon Schiele, Egon Schiele was not only drawing women, uh, masturbating, drawing nudes, just being sexual. You know, there was a sexualization of just the way that he was able to describe the form with line, you know, around the pelvic and the pubic areas. Just He's very descriptive, you know what I mean? And he was jailed for his work, you know? And artists throughout history have been jailed for doing erotic art. Now, we celebrate it. Egon Schiele drawings like that are just shown all over the world. I have two Egon Schiele books here in my studio. You can buy it. It's not an issue whatsoever. But it's amazing at one point, this guy was jailed. Did you know that? I didn't. I'm just making it up. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. <laughs> it really happened. But he, you know, he was jailed for his work. And, and, and many artists actually were also jailed. I'm for surprised their work. that he was jailed just because that time in which he worked was a much more open-minded, liberal time considering our... In Austria? Yeah, I'm just thinking of the fantasy eclat and the images that people like Klimt and Sheila and Kokoschka, just all of those contemporaries, they're kind of provocative. Well, Sheila was a student of Klimt. Right. And he was his, he was his great prodigy. Um, and Klimt, although he did very beautiful women, I don't think that he was doing... As he did a couple of women maybe touching themselves, but nothing was as striking and powerful as what Sheila did, especially which is interesting because he had such an expressive understanding of form and line. And I feel like it wasn't even the act of the woman. It was the way that he was able to capture realism and naturalism with just line that it was shocking. It was an interesting thing because it's a technical aspect of draftsmanship that pushed a sexual aspect hmm. of his content. That is really interesting. I think also the content itself was inflammatory because often he would depict two women yes. or children. And yeah. so then we get into this whole dialogue of, of uh, exploitation of minors. Yep. And so maybe that added to the, the fever pitch. Prison sentence. Right, yeah. or the prison sentence. Rightfully so. <laughs> so uh, is there any other artists that you want to talk about before we have to shut it down? Yeah. Shut it down. Yeah, some examples of sex in art that I think are notable. First of all, the Warren Cup, which mm -hmm. was a, it came from the Greco-Roman era. And we, we sometimes forget this in our study of, of antiquity that pederasty was accepted and it was celebrated, like you say. So what pederasty... So that, okay, yeah, I was, I was going to have, I was going to explain it, but it's better coming from No, you explain it, please. Well, wasn't it when a, uh, an older man got to have sex with a younger man? Exactly. Yeah. And so this was... How Greek. So, exactly. It was so Greek. And the Warren Cup is this beautiful silver cup. But why did at, they do that? It was like a reward, right? Of sorts? Oh, I actually like have a, no like idea. It was like coming back from battle, and then you did that, and then you were like rewarded. I always thought Manny, that it you was... would be rewarded with me. <laughs> Not I thought bad, it was right? more it about like intellectualism and sharing ideas and how that that kind of exchange was just seen energetically aligned with a physical exchange. Yeah, and it was, uh, they would depict this in their art like it was normal. And for many centuries, the art was hidden because nobody wanted to show it. Because it's, you know, it's indicative of these really kind of 
what people considered fucked up social behaviors of certain cultures that they wanted to hide. And once again, this is why I stress this is more important than history because this talks about art. History talks about all history. And this tells you, and they're trying to hide history. You know what I mean? They're trying to hide history by hiding the art of the culture because the art sees through the culture and explains everything that's going on, good and bad. Totally. It's democratic. It is pervasive across disciplines and themes. And that's why I think it's so important to see the work in person because looking at its physicality may tell you something about the work that just seeing a slide rendition wouldn't. For instance, if something is on a piece of paper and the corners have been weathered, and it's very small, intimate in scale, then perhaps it was intended for private use rather than a gigantic canvas that has been lacquered and framed really ornately. Mm. That, we can assume, was meant for public display. That's a good so point. So these things, they matter because I'm sure, and I'm saying this just out of, of supposition rather than anything else, but I'm sure that a lot of these erotic works that we've been talking about by artists who are really well known, I bet the erotic stuff is small. I bet it's on more modest materials because I am assuming it was for private use. Yeah. I only do erotic art on post-its personally. No, I'm kidding. No, no but I do. Yeah, no. Some of my work is on post-its usually because I want to do it and slap it on the desk. And when Manny shows up, he's like, oh, you know, you get, oh fuck. This gets a little shocked. But um, look, uh, you guys you know, check out erotic art, and and there's too many to name, I and mean, we can we haven't even gone into Maplethorpe or oh, Joe yes. Peter Witkin or all the photography didn't... and all of the collage and all of the different artists and painters throughout the different histories. You guys have to just explore it yourself. If you look up erotic art, you will see it. I am working on my own erotic art book, so uh, stay tuned for that. It's been in the works, and it's basically just a compilation. Uh, of my sketches and drawings and paintings throughout the years of just stuff that I do on the down low when I'm just kind of exercising my collected unconscious and, and you know, just co collecting my unconscious, I want to say, of these collections of, of drawings. And isn't that language and even though it's that a collective used? unconscious. What? Right. I like that. Very surrealist of you. So interesting that when you're describing this project, you said that you do these things on the down low. And I yeah. think that illustrates the themes that we've been discussing. Because when I've shown it, and you know, a lot of my people are, uh, some of them are conservative, and some of them are religious, and some of them are Democrats who are very Christian, and you know, who, who some are just very, they don't want to know that I've done that. The guy who created the piano man, and this jazz imagery, or African American art, or have really talked about the like, you know, Puerto Rican Latino experience or, or black experience in New York City and all of a sudden I'm doing a guy with a giant heart on sitting on an asshole. That's shocking to them. They're like, that guy's got a fourteen foot cock and he's sitting on an asshole. I'm not I'm not gonna follow you anymore. You know, but it's like but that's three sixty Bua. You know, and and just like it was three sixty Picasso. So some we heard Nanette talk about how he was a piece of shit, misogynist, you know, arrogant prick. Sure. But then he was also the father of cubism right. and a beautiful painter with his blue period stuff. He did some very sensitive, delicate paintings of 
the guitarista in all blue during his blue period. What a beautiful, sensitive piece of an old man. Yeah, exactly. It's the butt also that is so important. And we all have shades. We have textures. And it's so comfortable to be myopic in the way that we think of artists and to put them in one category. And I think my intention in this show is to expand that a little bit and to be sex positive, body positive, and to celebrate and to acknowledge all of these different experiences that have been happening from the dawn of time onwards throughout the world. Yeah, and if you look at a lot of artists, too, that are really freaking cool, like Frank Frazetta, what a wonderful artist. Jeff Jones, who started off as a man and later became a woman in his career. We should do an episode on Jeff Jones. Fucking great painter. Oh, God. Like, uh, you know, I look at Jeff Jones stuff all the time. Richard Corbin, all these guys who did these busty Conan the Barbarian-ish women, like Barbarella-type women who are just voluptuous. Not voluptuous. A lot of motherfuckers say voluptuous. It just bugs me out. Do they really? Yeah, there's so many. You don't live in that world, Lizzie, where you have to hang out with motherfuckers that say voluptuous. Like, yo, man, she was voluptuous, son. (laughs) She was voluptuous, son. I want someone to say I'm voluptuous. No, I live in a world where people say mortified when they mean horrified. Uh, And I always say, oh, that situation embarrassed you? But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Let's leave our listeners with maybe one piece of explicit sexual art that they should look at that we haven't yet discussed. And I leave them with Jeff Koons, Blowjob Ice, or (laughs) Jeff Eating Alona. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Interesting. They're great. Um, You know, I would just say delve into who I think is the most important erotic artist of all time. And I'm going to mention his name again is Egon Sheila or Sheely, the student of uh, Gustav Klimt, who died very, very young at 27. Of syphilis, maybe? Of Some s- kind of sexual disease. Yeah, I, I, be- I believe he, he died of, uh, of syphilis, but he was very young, way before his time. Um, but I think that he, in my opinion, is the most, in the fine art world, the most, ironically, the most mainstream, but the most, uh, and the most uh, celebrated erotic artist of all time. So there you have it. Peace the fuck out.